to change our hearts. Please change our hearts. Change my heart, Father, wherever there's any area of my life where I do not love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. Father, please come change me. Make us like you, Jesus. We, we love you, Lord. We love to gather as your people. We love to sing to you because you are real. You are resurrected. You conquered death. You save us. Lord, if we're here this morning and we know you as our Savior, it's because you saved us. We didn't come to you, but you came after us. It's because of you, Jesus. And I don't have the words to worship you as you deserve. But we, we try, God. And oh, God, how we love you. You're so faithful. Fathers, we look at your word this morning. Would you please just let it have its intended effect in our hearts? That as the word goes forth here in just a few minutes, Father, that your Holy Spirit would take it and that you would wield it as the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, that you would cause it to pierce our hearts, to convict us, to heal us, to build us up, to, to tear us down where we need it. Jesus, we just declare together in faith that you are Lord. All authority belongs to you. And we look to you now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. God is good. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Acts chapter 2. This is where we were this past week in the Bible reading plan. Uh, last year in our Bible reading plan, we had read through the entire New Testament one chapter a day, five days a week, and last year, I think when we hit Acts 2, I believe I preached on the, the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, uh, more towards the beginning of Acts 2. Today, I want to look at um, the end of Acts chapter 2. Uh, I primarily want to look at verses 42 through 47. However, I want to go back and I want to grab verse 33 as well, too. And so I'm just going to read verse 33 through the end of the chapter but we will primarily be focusing on the end. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 33, this is the word of the Lord. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are now hearing. This is Peter preaching sermon on the day of Pentecost. Verse 34. Now David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation." So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 
souls. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor, literally grace, charis, with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray one more time. Father, open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are a lot of guys who say that there's never been a golden age of the church. And, and I, I tend to agree in a sense. Meaning, if you, if you read the New Testament, and even read later on in the book of Acts, and, or you read the book of Corinthians. Whenever I feel discouraged about bad stuff happening in the church, I go and read the book of Corinthians, and I think, we're not that bad. <laughs> or read the book of Galatians, and the mess that they were dealing with. You had two women that were fighting with each other in Philippi. That never happens. Um, I'm just kidding, just kidding. You know, but, like, they were sinners like us. And so there's, there's a very real sense in which, yeah, I mean, there never, like, necessarily was like a golden age of the church in the sense of, like, perfection. But what we just read here, this is pretty golden. This is pretty golden. And I, and I think that it's given to us to come back again and again and again to looking at the beauty of the church in kind of its infant stages, but in a very pure form that I hope this morning as we look at it, that it stirs something in us. And it, and it causes us to want this and to believe God for this that we as a local church, just a local church, would aspire and call out to God to, to see and experience something like this. Because this is beautiful, folks. It's absolutely, it's absolutely beautiful. It's hard to overstate the importance, I think, of these verses, especially verses 42 through 47. Um, to talk about what a church should be with some broad strokes or to um, talk about what it is we're, we're trying to accomplish at a church and to not talk about these verses would be kind of like giving a big overview of America and not talking about the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the Revolutionary War. I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense. To leave, to leave this out um, is to miss kind of the, 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 the meat of what, um, of what the church uh, is supposed to be and supposed to 
look like. And so I want to I wanna spend some time this morning looking at this. We're going to come at this from a couple different ways. We're going to look at kind of the big 30,000 foot view uh, of what this is. And that's kind of what this is. Again, especially verses 42 through 47, Luke is giving some big summary statements of kind of some cultural markers that were happening in kind of these infant stages uh, of the church. Um, but then what I want to do is I want to fly down low and I want to talk about some really practical things regarding how this should impact us here at Mercy Hill. I had a friend of mine tell me recently about his experience flying in an airplane with a friend who has his pilot's license and uh, he wanted to see how many G's he could take and so he was flying up high and then he asked him to dive down low and the guy dove down low and he said he made it to about six and a half G's before his head knocked over. And so we're going to go up high, we're going to go up high and then we're going to come down really low. Hopefully nobody passes out. But you know, whatever. Um, uh, because, and, and again, is that th- throughout, throughout history, the church, and we are, we are the church, the church has gone forward victoriously by looking backwards reverently. The church has always gone forward victoriously by looking backwards reverently. And I want us to get this because, folks, we, we're not, like, we have 2,000 years of history of people that have gone before us that quite honestly have had much greater impact for the kingdom of God than what we have. And to think that we somehow are doing church perfectly or we've got it all together is just arrogant and that's never how the church has gone forward. The church has always um, been renewed and God has done a special work as people have looked back to the gospel, to the person and work of Jesus Christ and I believe also to these early stages of what the church is and should be. And so the same is true for us. If we want to go forward victoriously, we want to look backwards reverently. So here's how I want to come at this. This morning, uh, I want to cover kind of a lot of ground, and so just to give us a few uh, kind of markers or hangers to go on, it's kind of an agricultural, uh, I guess you'd say, outline, but I want to talk about the root, the fruit, and the fertilizer. The root, the fruit, and the fertilizer, okay? Number one, the root, the root of the church, the root of what the church is, okay? You shouldn't be surprised by this, but here's the root of the church. The root of the church is the sovereign, powerful, almighty grace of God. That's it. If God is not in it, if God is not at the start of it, if God has not birthed it, then it's not a church. It's not. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If God's not in it, we don't want to be a part of it. If God's not in what we're doing here, then we should all just shut it down now. And I'm being serious. We're not here just to put on a show. We're not here just to, you know, have, you know, I mean, we have a barn background, which I know is weird, but you know, you all deal with it every week, so you can keep coming. But, um, it's like, but that, that's not what it's about. It's about Jesus Christ, and either we're following him in what he's doing, or we're not. And man, I, I talk with pastor friends all the time, and, you know, and, and man, there's literally, guys, I, there's literally a million, maybe billion, I don't know, they say billion is the new million, anyway, but the million dollar industry in America on how to plant churches. I promise you, I get emails, and it's basically like church in a box. 
And if you just buy this and do this and do these steps and run this program, you can plant a church. That's not what the church is. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. And the church of God can only be birthed. The church universal, as we saw here on the day of Pentecost, but any local church. It comes down to the sovereign working of the power of God in human hearts and calling a group of people together to live on mission. Worship community and mission centered around Jesus Christ. That's the only way that the church is built. What you have here in the book of Acts is now that Jesus has ascended. He has ascended on high. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And so he pours out the Holy Spirit. That's why I wanted to catch verse 33 here. The, the Holy Spirit comes. There's wind. There's fire. Just like when God's glory came down in the Old Testament and filled the, uh, Solomon's temple when he dedicates the temple. The temple is now not a place, but it's a people. And so you see wind and fire coming down, the glory of God resting upon each one. They begin to uh, praise God in other languages. Everybody's like, what's going on? And Peter stands up and he preaches this sermon, giving explanation to what's going on. And part of what he says, verse 33, he says, being therefore exalted, speaking of Jesus, to the Father's right hand. I want to say something. This doesn't really have much to do with what I'm saying, but I want to hit this. This is just on my heart this past week. Is that... You guys, you know Jesus is enthroned on his throne right now. Right now. Do you know that? Like, I feel like sometimes our eschatology leads us to believe that, like, he's going to be enthroned someday when he comes back. He, his resurrection and his ascension, he is now seated at the Father's right hand. He is enthroned. He is Lord right now. And the reason that matters is that when he declares and commands, he doesn't just suggest, but he commands people everywhere, repent. And believe in me, when he's coming back, he's not just coming back to be accepted, although he is going to be welcomed by his people. We talked about that a few weeks ago in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates, that the king of glory may come in. Like, there's some truth to that. But, but when he's coming back, he's coming back in judgment. And he is going to judge everyone who has not repented and trusted in him alone for salvation. He is the king. He is enthroned right now. He is Lord of his church today, not just someday. And you see here in verse 33 that the risen Christ enthroned, seated at the Father's right hand, seated on high. It says in verse 33, I love this, I love this little phrase here. He's exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's how Jesus referred to it also back in Acts chapter 1, when in speaking of the Holy Spirit, he said, you will receive the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. I love that phrase. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The root of the church can only be the power of the Spirit, which is referred to here as the promise of the Father that is poured out by the resurrected Christ. The power of the Spirit, which is the promise of the Father, poured out by the resurrected Christ. And it doesn't always look like Tongues and wind and fire and 3,000 people getting saved and baptized. 
Sometimes it looks like in Acts 16, where there's just a group of ladies at a little prayer meeting down by the riverside. And Paul goes down and he preaches to them, but you'll see the same, the same thing. Jesus doing what only Jesus can do. And if you read in Acts 16, it says that Jesus opened one of those ladies' hearts to hear what Paul was saying. Her name was Lydia. And with this one lady, again, God's sovereign grace, the Holy Spirit comes in power, and the church in Philippi is birthed. The sovereign work of God, we have to understand that this is our root system. I want to try to show you a video. I get very nervous whenever I try to play a video because I just am always hesitant that it's not going to work. Okay, watch right here. Watch this ground right here. See if you can see this. Hold on. It's coming. Do you see that? Do you see that ground swell? Did you see that? It's, it's vertical video. I know. If I was a better videographer, I'd have turned it sideways. I, I know I'm, I stink at that. Did you see that? Did you see that ground? That's a tree in our dro- beside our driveway. And the other day, I was standing out there <laughs> in the wind, and oh, there it goes again. Yeah. And uh, I was standing there with the dog, and I, I like storms. And so I just, it wasn't raining yet, but I was just going out. The wind was blowing. And all of a sudden, I'm standing there by the tree. And I see the ground begin to move. So, and the th- reason it freaked me out is, you can't see it in that picture, but just 10 feet to the right of it, there was a tree identical to this tree that fell down last year in a windstorm. And the same thing, and it literally went like that. It came up by the roots, and, and it fell over, and it, took down, and it took down the power lines. And so I was standing out there, and all of a sudden I was like, oh my goodness. And so... Um, this doesn't really have anything to do with my sermon either, but I'll tell you. So, so that night, that night, I called my buddy Merv, who used to do timber cutting, and uh, I showed him that video, and he's like, dude, that's absolutely going to come down on your house. And I said, that's what I was thinking. And so he came over, and at 9.45 at night, we, it was dark. We had our, our uh, truck lights on it, and he fired up his chainsaw, and uh, I'm sure we woke some people in Buckhorn, but that's all right. Um, and we, we fell. It's like a 90-foot tree like a 90-foot tree. And so in the dark, we fell this big 90-foot tree because as it was blowing, like the real way that was swelling, our house is just back on the other side of the driveway and it would have, come, it would have probably come right down on our house. What's the point? Here's the point. That tree, as well as the other one that fell down a year ago, it was legit like 90 feet tall. It had outgrown its root system. It had outgrown its root system. It, it, was, it, it, it appeared to be healthy. It was very tall. It wasn't, it wasn't dead. It wasn't hollow. But it did not have the root system to support the wind that would blow it every now and then. And folks, I want us to get this, and I want us to understand this. And it's pretty simple, but I'm telling you, it could not be more central. Is that when churches begin to falter and fall, and get moved around by what, no matter what it is, every wind and wave of doctrine, every wind and wave of trial or tribulation, is because in some way we've outgrown our root system. And we've begun to think that we can stand on our own. Or we've begun to think that, well, maybe, maybe we've got this down, man. We, we, we know how to do three songs and a sermon and a closing song, and we know how to do the little programs. That's not what it's about. We must 
always, continually, ever, only, always be rooted and grounded in the sovereign grace of God, which means we are always dependent upon Him. We must always be dependent upon Him. We don't just start that way and then think we're going to end some other way. We must always be rooted and grounded in Him, in His sovereign work, in what He's doing, in where He wants to go. He's the Lord and Savior. He's the rabbi. We're just disciples. We're trying to follow Him. We're not asking Him to come see what we're doing. We want to go where He's going. But whenever we think that He needs to come to our beck and call, we've outgrown our root system, and I'm telling you, we'll fall. Individually or corporately as a church. So that's the root. I want to look at the fruit. Verses 43 through 47. We'll come back to verse 42. Verse 43, what a lovely synopsis of what was going on here. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. That word awe is literally fear. It's it's the Greek word phobos, where we get our English word phobia. It's something that's like captivated your attention. When we think of a phobia, it's, it's, it's it's a crippling fear of something, but it's not, doesn't necessarily have to be negative. Like this is something good. Their hearts have been captivated by the wonder of who God is. They are in awe. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Here's the first fruit, okay? The root is the sovereign work of God. Here's here's the first fruit. fruit is that there was just organic generosity spontaneous generosity some people have tried to you know kind of use this and twist this you know uh, for promoting communism or maybe some sort of you know system where we really try to give everything away and again there's nothing wrong with being organized uh, in our generosity the more people you get you'll see this later on in the book of acts uh, chapter six you know they had to distribute and meet all the needs of all the different um uh, ethnic groups of widows and so on and so forth. But, but, but what you see here is, is this, isn't, this isn't a program that they're just a part of. Like It is organic generosity. It's not required, but out of the abundance of their hearts, they're just, they're just giving. But I want you to notice, and this will be true for all of them, is the reason that they're being generous because the apostles were rebuking their greed? No. It was because they were in awe. So here's the point. Is that whenever there's stinginess or, or greed or selfishness or a lack of giving, happens all the time. Pastors feel that pressure and they go, I better do a sermon series on giving. Giving's not the problem. You don't have a giving problem. You have an awe problem. Right? It's not the issue. When you're in awe, when you're captivated by the transcendent God, here, you can have my money. I don't care. Because, again, the root 
is the sovereign working of God. And so you've got this organic generosity is one fruit. Another one, you've got a joyful hospitality. Joyful hospitality. Well, I guess I've got to have people over to my house. It's a nice Christian thing to do. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together. I don't know where that voice came from. I do voices sometimes. I'm not sure what that was, but you're welcome for that, I guess. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food, I love this, with glad and generous hearts. Nothing forced. Not grumpy, well, I guess I've got to do it, hospitality. Joyful hospitality. Glad hearts, generous hearts. What's the condition of your heart this morning? And again, if you find that your heart isn't glad and isn't generous, you have an awe problem. You have a wonder problem. Your heart is not captivated by something greater than yourself. Your heart is stuck on yourself. Another fruit, appealing worship, or maybe winsome worship, if you like alliteration. It says they were receiving their food in their homes with glad and generous hearts. And then verse 47, I love this, praising God. So they, I mean, these are, this is a worshiping group here. They're praising God, but get it, and, and having favor, literally grace, having favor with all the people. So not just people in the church, but the people in Jerusalem. And this, 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 I, I, oh, this, this drives me bonkers, okay, is because we, we've had this thing in the church for the last, I don't know, 40 years or whatever, kind of this, this seeker movement, the seeker-sensitive movement. And so we've said, well, there's all these people seeking God, and I get this. And so we don't want to turn them off by passionately worshiping him. We, instead, we just want to, we're going to kind of make it a little easier to believe and just kind of entertain them and kind of build this common ground. The problem seeker is, the word seeker is problematic to begin with, but if you've got people that are seeking God, why would they be turned off by you passionately worshiping him? It's bizarre. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird, Okay. So I'm not, I, like, how many of you have ever been, huh, I was going to say hit up, but maybe you are this person, that's like all into like, you know, that, that new, I don't know, like organic mango juice or something that they've harvested fresh from like Fiji or something, you know, and you're going to drink it and all of a sudden you're going to look 40 years younger, you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm making this illustration up as I go right now, but you can tell, but... Uh, but like that, that thing, you know, or that magic pill or whatever. And, so, and people, they're just so passionate about it. And they just can't stop telling you about this new little miracle thing that they've gotten or whatever. And they're, now here's the, you might not even be like all in on that. You might not be seeking to like uh, get healthy. You might be, look, I'm fat and happy. Leave me alone, okay? Um, but, but you still, like, like there's, their passion is somewhat is somewhat winsome. It might be a tad annoying in that context. But anyway, but it's somewhat like, like they're passionate about it. But my point is, when has passion, when has passionate worship or passionate pursuit of anything ever really turned people away? Like folks, we're to be passionate worshipers, white hot worshipers of Jesus Christ. 
and at the same time be opening up our homes with joy and be generous in giving away our things. Uh, Listen, as shocking as this may be, the world actually thinks this looks good. We have so overcomplicated mission. We have so overcomplicated what it means to live lives that are attractive to, to the outside world. Our primary job is to worship Jesus Christ, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. As you do that, it's like Peter describes it. He says, we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen? Organic generosity, joyful hospitality, appealing, winsome worship. People wanted to be a part of this. It was beautiful. Very quickly, um, to let's just talk real practical for a minute. So I told, again, I told you I was, we were going to get up high. We're probably not done being that high, but let's dive down low for just a second. Okay. What happens when you don't have this in a church, though? What happens when there's not just joyful hospitality, this oneness, appealing, appealing worship, organic generosity, okay? Well, number one, I've already told you, it's not a generosity problem, a hospitality problem, or a worship problem. It's an awe problem. It's a wonder problem. So there's that. But here's the other thing. As you read the New Testament epistles, okay, just to kind of fill out, fill in some of the, the, the gray areas here so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, okay? He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Then he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Don't overcomplicate this. Where you're not experiencing this, just obey those verses I just read from Ephesians chapter 4. I don't care if you don't feel like it. It would be better if you feel like it. Pray that you would feel like it. But even if you don't feel like it, do the right thing. Make a phone call. Go to somebody and say, brother, sister, I'm sorry. I've been harboring this bitterness and this frustration towards you in my heart for quite some time. And that's not right. And I want you to know that I've chosen to forgive you. You, 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 probably, you might not even know that you wronged me. And again, that's why it's wrong. It's, the, the, the fault is mine. Please forgive me for harboring this in your heart. And, and here's what I don't want you to miss in the middle of those verses that I just read. Is that command to not grieve the Holy Spirit? That's not because they were, you know, drinking or smoking or chewing or all, like I'm not for those things either. 
okay? But necessarily, but like, that's not the context in which he talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. The context in which he talks about grieving the Holy Spirit is that you're holding on to unforgiveness in your heart. That you're holding on to bitterness. And then here's where it gets really nasty and nasty over a long period of time because we do this over long periods of time in the church. Is we hang on to bitterness in our hearts towards another brother or sister or anybody for that matter. But then we come and we sing, we say, Jesus, I want the fullness of your Holy Spirit. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. But we are unwilling to let go of the bitterness. And you got to understand that in that moment, you are speaking out of two sides of your mouth. Because you cannot say that you want the fullness of the Holy Spirit and all that God wants to do in, and around, in, in your life and in our church while at the same time hanging on to bitterness and unforgiveness. You are grieving the Holy Spirit if you're doing that. And don't overcomplicate it. Listen to me. Just stop it. Stop. Just make a choice. Confess it. Say, God, I can't. I've got this bitterness. I've got this hurt. Listen, the pain is real. I understand it. Totally understand that. But you have no right to hang on to it. Because of the way that Christ has forgiven you, you have no right to hang on to your bitterness or unforgiveness. And I'm telling you folks, this right here, the reason I'm bringing this up is Hanging on to bitterness or frustration in your heart is going to keep us as a church from experiencing what we're reading about in the book of Acts this morning. The two cannot go together. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life, the Bible says. So we got the root, the fruit. How about the fertilizer? Okay. Four things, verse 42. Again, obviously the word fertilizer is not in the text here. Um, but I, I do think that this metaphor works. The root, the fruit, and the fertilizer. Verse 42. Because it says, they devoted. They devoted. They devoted themselves to four things. And let me say, these are extremely ordinary things. Like, what was their secret? How'd they do this? It, very ordinary. Four things. They devoted themselves. Means to be continually steadfast in. To actually, the word devoted can also mean to be courageous in. The apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Okay, so let's look at the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and then I want to come back and talk about the fellowship and what that means. Because that's kind of central to all of them. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles had walked with Jesus for three years. They had seen all the miracles. They had not only heard the parables, but they'd heard the parables many times explained in private. They were still commanded at the beginning of the book of Acts to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and they'd done that. That's happened now. You remember after the resurrection... Jesus appears to them over a period of 40 days, explaining to them the things of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 24, two different places, the two guys that are walking on the road to Emmaus, as well as the apostles that are waiting in the upper room. 
it says that as Jesus would speak with them, it says, he, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Later on in Luke 24 with the 12, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The point being is that when it says apostles teaching here, this is nothing secretive, there's not so, well, there's not some guy out there named Mr. Apostle that like has a secret teaching. There are guys that think that they are that, run from that, that is not real. You hear me? Okay? If there's some dude that likes to go around with the title of Mr. Apostle and thinks that he's got some sort of secret teaching, he is a false teacher, I promise you. Okay? Um, when it says apostles teaching, they are simply unpacking the Old Testament scriptures in light of the centrality of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the key to unlocking the scriptures. This is exactly what you see Peter do. We don't have time to look at this. This is exactly what you see Peter do in this sermon in Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit comes with wind and fire. What's going on? Well, let me explain it to you. This is what Joel says, and he exegetes the book of Joel, and then he brings in some psalms. They devoted themselves to the word of God. This is why, and again, again we're, we're coming right down along the ground now, okay? Very simple, very ordinary. This is why at Mercy Hill Church, we have a Bible reading plan, okay? You can get this cool little bookmarker. It's not really cool, but I just said that. Um, this little bookmarker, it's got some questions for you to ask each day, and then, you know, where we're at each week. And this year, you know, last year we read one chapter a day, five days a week, the New Testament in a year, and even that was too much. We're just doing one chapter a week, but we're doing it together. And you can talk about it in your discipleship groups. You can talk about it in your small churches. You hear it unpacked here on Sunday mornings. Um, I want to say this, is that if you, I believe in what we do here on Sunday mornings. I believe in what I'm doing right now. It doesn't have to be me, but I, it, I believe in the proclamation of the word, Okay? But if the only word that you're getting is when you come and sit in a service on Sunday morning, you are going to shrivel up and die spiritually. It's that simple. And I've told you this before, this is nothing new. I know I sound like a broken record, but I'll say it again. Is that I'm amazed at the amount of people that say that they can't grow spiritually and they come talk with me and I say, well, how often do you read your Bible? There's always a correlation. There's always a correlation. It's not that if you read your Bible, you won't still go through difficulties or seasons where maybe God feels distant, or maybe things are difficult, but you have to be in the, in the Word. We have to, as a local church, devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, just simply the Word of God. That's what it is, okay? Secondly, to the breaking of bread. Okay, this is, if you notice back in verse 46, day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This, I think there's a, there, there's a dual meaning here, um, and commentators are kind of spread out on this. They definitely were just eating together. They were eating meals, okay? But this term here, especially in verse 42, the breaking of bread, is, is very, very likely, uh, uh, most probably, a reference to the Lord's Supper. And they would do it differently than we would. They would have a meal, usually in their homes, and then at kind of the end of that meal, they would break the bread and pass the cup like Jesus would have taught the apostles at the Last Supper, right? Okay, um, this idea of the breaking of bread of, of, of communion, 
okay? Doing that, uh, doing that regularly. This was central to the early church, okay? A um, uh, couple things, okay? And again, we're right down on the ground now. But for those of you that have been at Mercio for a while, you know that from the start of the church up until this past year because of COVID, we did communion every single week. We would, end, we would end the service that way. One of the reasons we wanted to do that when we started the church, we did it from day one, was that for me, I wanted to every single week, no matter where we're at in the word of God, I always wanted to make sure that I was landing the plane at the cross, right? And the and communion helps me to do that that every week we're gonna come back and we're gonna remember that no matter how much we think we're learning or you know, what big theological word or Greek or Hebrew word we may have unpacked that morning, in the end, what we have is Jesus, bloody, crown of thorns on his head, hanging on a cross, taking the wrath of God on him that we deserved. That is our only hope. That Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have no other hope. Now, in the last year, we've been getting many questions. When are we going to start doing communion again? All I can do is be totally honest with you. I am very confident we will do it again. 2020, and now you're into 21, it's been weird. Amen? All right. Pandemics are not unprecedented in the history of the world, but they're unprecedented in our lifetime. I'm going to tell you a secret. You ready? Don't tell anybody. Not everyone thinks like you. Shh. The reason I say that is, I know many of you are ready to go. Let's do communion again. Okay? I completely understand that. There are some who are not. We are just trying to take our time, and, when, and in time, I promise you, we will come back and we will do this again. Okay? We're just, um, we're just trying to be sensitive as best we can to shepherd everyone as best we can as we kind of navigate the last year that's been pretty crazy, right? But this idea of breaking bread, here's the big takeaway, is that the early church, as any church now that wants to be healthy and fruitful, it must be cross-centered. The Lord's table, the broken body, the shed blood, it is all about the cross, folks. And, and as crazy as this may sound, I think this is a real thing that happens in our day, that's happening in our day, is that we've created this thing where it's possible to be Jesus-centered but not cross-centered because we've created a Jesus in our own image. We've created a Jesus that, doesn't, that just, just heals and just, and just cares for you. But we kind of... We're embarrassed of the cross, so we pull back. Listen, if we're going to be Christ-centered, then we must be cross-centered. Those two things must go hand in hand. And that's one of the ways you can tell about all the false Christs, the false Jesuses that are being preached today. How do you know it's the real Jesus? Are they talking about the cross? Are they talking about the cross? Third, (coughs) the prayers. Again, very ordinary. Look at the little phrase. Notice it doesn't just say, and they prayed. They gave themselves to the prayers. The prayers. Okay, very technical thing here, um, but one very practical thing I just want to encourage you in. I think what he's talking about here is there were normal hours of prayer in the Jewish culture. 
Okay? We do not, this is not like a mandate. We don't have to do this. But the takeaway is, is that there were regular rhythms of prayer. I cannot encourage you enough. If you are struggling in your prayer life, if you, no matter where you're at, if you want to grow in your prayer life, develop rhythms of prayer. Rhythms of prayer. Okay? You'll see right over in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. At the hour of prayer. Now, unique time in history. They're still kind of attending the temple, even though now they themselves are the temple because of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit's living in not a place, but a people, as I said earlier. But um, they're going up at the hour of prayer. In, in uh, Acts chapter 10, you see Peter um, praying, and it says, The next day as they were going on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the, house, on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That would have been noon. Most historical commentaries talk about the hours of prayer probably being 9, noon, and 3 p.m., okay? Um, In Daniel chapter 6, it talks about how Daniel, in his life, living a godly life in the midst of Babylon, would give himself to prayer three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. In Psalm chapter 55, verses 16 and 17, listen to this. David says, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. Here's what this would practically look like, okay? Is that if, if you're like, man, I could sit down to pray, but you know, I hear these people that like pray for an hour or two hours and man, I just can't do that. That's fine. Don't worry about that. Set your alarm. Get your phone out right after the service. Not now. Wait. But after the service, get your phone out and set an alarm. For one time in the morning, one time on your lunch break, and one time in the evening, before you go to bed or after you come home from work or on the drive home or whatever. And I want you just to take 10 minutes, a 10-minute block of time. I want you to take five minutes, and I want you just to thank God for who he is, and then I just want you to be quiet. Just, just listen. Just be quiet. And then tell him whatever you want to tell him for five minutes, and do that three times a day. I promise you, you will grow in your prayer life. Again, these are very ordinary things that the early church gave themselves to. You can do that individually, corporately. Corporately, our rhythms of prayer. I know it's early. I understand not everybody can make it. That's okay. We love you, but come if you can. Tuesday, Thursday morning from, what time is it? 5 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. We pray at the hub. Sunday mornings in the back room back there, the green room, 8.30 to 9.30. We've been going the first Wednesday of every month. We've been giving ourselves to prayer. Those are what the rhythms are look like for us corporately as a church develop prayer rhythms lastly the fourth thing that they devoted themselves to was to the fellowship this could be a whole sermon in itself i know i'm going long i gotta wrap up but they gave themselves to the fellowship this is this word that you'll hear me reference a lot because it appears many times in the new testament the greek word koinonia throughout the new testament it's trans the word koinonia is translated into english several different ways here you see it translated as fellowship other places in the new testament you see it translated as partnership sharing contribution participation or taking part in the reason it's translated all those different ways is because not one english word does a great job of capturing what's meant here by this one greek word koinonia but it is this idea that everybody that is involved in the local church they are all in it's, it's, here's what this means real practically. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It's yours. You say that, I say that, they say that, that's the way we roll. Something needs done, we're all in. It's not somebody else's responsibility, it's yours, it's mine. It's all of ours. That everybody, this koinonia, we adopt this attitude. 
One real quick story, I'll try to illustrate it as best I can. I think I've told you this story before. Um, worship team, why don't you come up and we'll close just to make sure that I, fit, I finish after this, okay? <laughs> but one time, back when I was doing roofing, uh, we did, we mainly did shingle and metal roofs, but we did one flat roof. We did a few of them, and there was a new flat roof product that we used. And uh, we not, we're, we'd used a little bit on like little porch roofs and stuff, but not a whole house. Did this one house, this big house, nice modern, all redone on the inside. We did this, used this new flat roof material on it. I thought it was all sealed up great. It had skylights and all this stuff. And, uh, and it was good for like two weeks, but it hadn't rained in those two weeks. And then it rained. And the homeowner called me, and he was not nice to me. <laughs> and it was leaking. I understand. I wouldn't have been nice to me either. It was leaking like crazy. And, uh, and it was a really nice house, and I felt really bad. And, um, but on the way up, the drive up there to his house, um, I called my buddies Mervin and Irvin. You know, Merv's my good buddy. They're, they're twins, by the way. But anyway, good guys. But here's the thing. They've both done roofing. They both, both had callbacks on leaks. Merv, one time, they had a re-roof crew, and he literally tore off the wrong roof. He did, the, he, he yeah, 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 he did, the, yeah, so if you think I'm bad, I've never done that. He, they, they tore off the wrong, they tore off the wrong roof. Anyway, here's my point, is I called them in distress, a homeowner was mad at me, I had to get this fixed, I took responsibility, they, they, they weren't responsible at all. Like, like legally or anything, like it was on me. But I called them and they said, we'll be right there. Because they'd been there many, many times. And they knew the sick feeling that I had in my stomach in that moment. And they came and they went with me and helped me apologize to this guy and you know, told him we got, you know, and it all worked out. It's, it was all taken care of. But folks, that's koinonia. Yeah, it's not technically my responsibility, but it is my responsibility. New believer needs discipled. Man, I wish, I, wish, I wish Pastor Eric or the elders would get that taken care of. It's not just our responsibility. We're trying to do the best we can, and we definitely don't do it perfectly. It's your responsibility. Man, I wish somebody would go to that unreached people group. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. That's koinonia. And again, out of those four things, the koinonia is what holds it all together. That they together gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And Nate, now you got to be just begin to play, buddy, or I'm really not going to quit. Like you got to, you got to grease the rails for me, or I'm going to keep going. Okay. Couple questions as we close. <laughs> Number one, how's your root system this morning? How's your root system? Are you rooted and grounded in the sovereign grace of God? And is it individually? It's a disciple for your family. And do you sense that here's a church? Why are you coming to Mercy Hill? What do you want? You know that's the first question that Jesus ever asked the first disciples? 
He turned and he looked at him and he said, what do you want? What do you want? I hope and I trust that you're coming because you do sense the Spirit of God doing something here. And I'm telling you folks, he is. He is. And I'm in awe of it. But I don't want anything else to ever replace our root system of the power of the Spirit, which is the promise of the Father poured out by the risen Christ. That's what we want. Secondly, how's your awe this morning? How's your awe? How's your wonder? Are your eyes captivated with yourself? I guarantee you're robbing yourself of joy. Get your eyes on the risen Christ. Let him captivate your heart. Let him take away any bitterness, any unforgiveness that you might be clinging to. And then lastly, are you devoted to the right things? You know, one of the things I hear people say all the time is, and I say the same thing, oh man, I'm so, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. I say that a lot, okay? And I hear it from other people too. Listen to me, we're all busy. We're all devoted to stuff. Are, you, are we devoted to the right things? Are we devoted to the word of God? Are we devoted to breaking of bread? Are we devoted to the cross? Are we devoted to regularly having rhythms of prayer, crying out to God? And are we devo de devoted to the koinonia itself, to the fellowship, to one another? Father, thanks for this morning. Lord, we love you. You're good. I thank you for this beautiful, beautiful portion of your word. Father, make us a church like this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys stand with me.